You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our monster talk audience and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. How does one understand a monster? Is it a real creature? Is it a myth? Is it a metaphor for fear special to a certain group or community? Is it a product of the mind? Is it divine punishment? And what is a monster anyway? On Monster Talk, we've been looking at monsters from multiple approaches for years now. And in some of our upcoming episodes, we're going to take a look at how the very topic of monsters is engaged by science and academia. Because, like Argus of Greek mythology, to really get a good view of monsters, you need many, many perspectives. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. Karen will be back next episode and will also be joining us for our Monster Talk Live on November 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern. I'm excited to welcome back Stephen Asma to the show. He's doing great work in the monster space, and our discussion is extremely wide-ranging, but always comes back to monsters. I'm delighted to share this conversation with you and hope you find it and Stephen's work of interest. 
check our show notes for lots of links to his work. Monster Dog. Okay, I'm excited to sit down and talk again with Stephen Asma today. And we last spoke in 2010, and since then, he appears to be helping develop what is, seems to be a growing field of academic recognition for monsters. That's what we want to talk about today, monsters and how they fit into academia and culture. And as a reminder, Stephen's a scholar, an artist, a professor, and you can beautifully see his art demonstrated on his YouTube channel, Monsterology. He's also a musician and a writer. And his books range from monsters to cognition to religion. And it's because of this huge overlap of interest, I'm sure, that I keep seeing his name popping up in my searches for my own research. And it's really been too long. So welcome back to Monster Talk, Stephen Asma. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's, it's good to be back. Yeah. So what have you been working on for the past, what is it, 12 years? Good God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a long stretch. Still monsters. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've been uh, doing other things too, but it all seems to be connected to the imagination and then monsters always plays a big role. Yeah. I saw that you popped up in a book that I bought last year. It was uh, Jeffrey Andrew Weinstock's The Monster Theory Reader in 2020. It looks like he's collected a, a really interesting sort of, what would you call it, a survey of the topic of people, academic writing about monsters. So What's your take on that? Is is this becoming an academic field that's being recognized? Yeah, that's a great book. And he's done a wonderful job of bringing together, like you said, um, academic uh, a- experts, you know, from a variety of fields, all talking about monster theory. And monster theory has been out there for a while, but he really organized uh, some very influential stuff. A lot of it originally came out of sort of literary studies and English departments. And that's, I believe he's in an English department, but also people like me, I'm, I have a philosophical training. That's what my PhD is in. I think he might have a cognitive scientist in there. So I think there's like a little bit of a groundswell. People are increasingly interested in monsters in a kind of interdisciplinary way. Like it's not just English departments anymore. Well, and I think that's probably the right way to, to you know, it, it's not just monsters for me. You know, I, I look at a lot of weird phenomenology topics on this show. And I think we started out the show thinking about are these things real or not? But, you know, after more than a decade, you, you, got, you, you really start to, if you really are being honest, you, you have to start asking questions like, what does this mean? You know, and how can I understand it? And, you know, it's like the old, you know, blind men trying to identify an elephant by touching the different parts. It, you can't really get a sort of gestalt understanding unless you have these multidisciplinary approaches. And, and I, I just, I'm getting to that for everything. I, it feels like you can't truly understand anything from a single approach. Well, I think I agree with you. And I think the, you know, there's a service to be done in looking at monsters, which you guys do. And it's in very important work because there's tremendous gullibility in the culture and it, claims need to be evaluated for truth. And, you know, what does science have to say about a particular kind of legend? All that work is really important. But then there's this additional work, which I think you rightly named as sort of phenomenological. Okay, why is this, you know, legend or this monster so ubiquitous? Why is it so pervasive? Why does it keep coming back? It's not enough to say, well, people are stupid and they they believe crazy things. No, that's there's a, a more interesting story happening, I think. And 
as as monsterologists, I think it's on us to try to figure out like, okay, why do dragons seem so pervasive? And are there sort of, you know, image schemas that cultures keep repeating over and over again? And why is that? Are there evolutionary reasons for that? So now we're beginning to get some really cool evolutionary psychology looking at monsters too. So it's a, it's a kind of a fun time to be looking at monsters. Yeah, I think you know, there's a sort of tendency in, within my peers to sort of be focused on rationality. And I, I guess the, the truth is there's sort of some limits to that because, you know, everything we learn in science is provisional, right? And, and as we sort of develop new technologies to dig into things and we look at, you know, look at the social studies replicability problem, I mean, there's all these sort of crises around what do we know? And if you, if you keep in mind that it's all provisional and then we always have to just be adjusting, find the, the closest way we can sort of hew towards truth, I think maybe that's better. But, you know, sort of having a slavish devotion to this is real, this is not, maybe isn't that helpful. And I, I'm really hoping, in fact, I've kind of sort of pushed away from calling myself a, a capital S skeptic. It's still the way I view the world, but I've, I've changed to calling myself a pro-reality activist because... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just I want people to try to use the best tools they can to figure things out. But I also have to acknowledge that, you know, the vast majority of what we do isn't really built on rational stuff. It's built on our feelings. And, you know, as you say, this evolutionary foundation that we, we are animals, you know, who've sort of developed this uh, what abstract world that we live in that's not actually it, it necessarily is part of nature because it's, you know, built from the building blocks of nature. But it it isn't really the way most animals live, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a very good point. And I think you're right. The tendency has been, if you're a, a sort of a hyper-rationalist, you know, of the, of a sort of Steven Pinker variety. And I, you know, I like Steve Pinker and uh, yeah, I've had dinner with him. I, I respect his work. He's got some rock star hair, doesn't he? I, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's got the hair. But if you're sort of like that devoted to a certain kind of uh, rationality, then I think you're missing a fairly important feature of your own really dedication to provisional sort of reasonableness, which is what you were talking about earlier. One of the things you want, like you said, is the best tools for understanding a phenomenon. And if the, the mind evolved as a predictive processor to try to understand its environment, then guess what? You know, scientific rationality is very late on the scene. And instead, what human beings have used for really hundreds of thousands and probably, arguably, a couple of million years is, the, is something like the imagination. The imagination gets sort of bracketed out, I think, by scientism as being, oh, that stuff's fantasy. But actually, what most people are doing is understanding their environment by using imagery and stories and narratives as templates to then move through what's coming at them sort of in real time and to project forward like what might be happening in the physical environment and in the social environment. And their imagination and monster stories are valuable. I agree. Now, it's funny you mentioned that because I saw that you've written a book called The Evolution of Imagination, but I just discovered this last night, so I haven't had a chance to read it. You haven't read it yet? <laughs> No, but it, again, these overlapping topics we're both interested in. I'm working on a book about uh, the way we invent and innovate technology. And a lot of that involves abstraction is the way I've been looking at it. But imagination is a perfectly good word for the same process. So what, what, what is your book about? What is the evolution of imagination? Yeah, I look at the imagination as uh, kind of the, 
the center of cognition itself. The, the tendency, like I was saying, is to sort of split the, the world into, you know, rationality is basically the way we understand nature and it gives us science. And then everything else is sort of in the realm of values or aesthetics, ethics, and sort of philosophers made this distinction arguably around the time of David Hume and it was really big in the logical positivist movement in the 20th century. But really, before that, philosophers like Aristotle and Kant said, well, wait, uh, pay attention to the imagination. It's not just some fantasy dream machine. It's the operating system that connects the, the sort of sensual information or the sensory information with something like concepts. So percepts and concepts have to get fitted together. Otherwise, we can't think. That's really how thinking works. So how does that happen? And Aristotle argued there's some kind of mediating uh, form of cognition, and, and Kant made the same argument. And I think now, uh, in more recent years, uh, there's a sort of movement that's called um, embodied cognition. And the embodied cognition movement is saying, you know, the way the body works and takes in sensory information is really important and constitutive. Like it, it has some role to play in how we think. And this is what I mean by the imagination. So what I'm doing in that book is looking, okay, how did image making, like how can we sort of have representations? Obviously cave paintings like at Lascaux or Chauvet, drawings of animals that our ancestors would have seen in nature. How's that possible? Like how can we take images from real-time sensory information uh, offline and then sort of manipulate them in mental space and then be able to sort of recreate them on a cave wall. So that, that book is me looking at things like music and visual art as a way in which uh, our ancestors would have sort of handled and adapted to their environment. And my argument is that all of that precedes what rationality as we recognize it today. Like probably this precedes language. Yeah. And, you know, it probably precedes some of the changes in the neocortex and I would argue that we still have this sort of, I don't want, don't want to call it primitive, but let's call it an original form of thinking, imaginative thinking, is still available to us now in certain kinds of art making, you know, activities. So improvisers can still access this mode of cognition and uh, artists can still activate it. So that's what the book is about. Well, that's really interesting. My daughter and I were discussing this uh, just a couple of days ago because I was trying to explain to her how that when we think with language, we're necessarily taking our ideas and abstracting them into sort of these words and sounds, which have mm -hmm. to try to capture these sort of loosey-goosey ideas. And then we pass those along orally or written to other people who then have to take those same you know, tools and try to turn them into a picture in their head to see it. And we don't always match up. In fact, I mm -hmm. don't know if we ever 100% match up unless it's a really simple idea. And... So we began discussing, well, how did this evolve? And, and, and I don't know, obviously, but I, I thought it was interesting because one of her first questions was, wait a minute, before language, what if you were blind? You know, how, mm. how, did, how were you able to communicate your needs to people? You know, I don't, and I don't know the answer to this. You know, I don't know if we have any records of that, but it's, it's, it's a really interesting question because uh, language has been an incredibly useful tool for spreading culture, but obviously... We were able to share ideas before language. Uh, you know, our earliest rock tools I, I seem to predate language. Uh, I, I don't know. It's very interesting. Yeah, I think the I think that's right. That's one of the key places to look. Is we think of language as 
oh, it's a description of nature or of our, you know, of our inner states. And that's sort of like what I would call an, an indicative use of language. Like you're just indicating something, you know, it's like denotative. There's the cat, there's the dog on the mat or whatever. But there must have been, and, you know, linguists now sort of sort of agree that there was a, a sort of imperative use of language before there was an indicative use of language. In other words, you have a sign or, or, or a symbol like a, a grunt or a noise, and it indicates something because it has like um, what I would call like somatic content. Like what we now know about language is that it probably evolved as a way of uh, grooming each other. So you see how mothers will coo with this motherese kind of like babble to their babies. That's not like a mother describing the world to its baby. It's actually soothing the baby by using these auditory sounds. And we think that language I think I think this is Robin Dunbar's theory that we think that language emerged as a way in which groups of people, just like primates, can sort of groom each other at a distance instead of like picking the bugs off our each other's backs, which is actually much more for social bonding uh, and creating of like connections and affiliations. We started to do it with language. So I think language still contains a lot of emotional content. Like if I tell a monster story or a horror story, then I'm not just describing something that is fearful. I'm actually eliciting fear in your body. And that's the key uh, to some of these symbol systems like language or imagery is that it's, it actually directly activates your affective or emotional system. And that's really sort of been forgotten, I think, by 20th century uh, theories of language. But it's coming back, I think. Interesting. You mentioned predictive modeling earlier. Yeah. And I think I, I got turned on to that by um, the book on intelligence by Jeff Hawkins. Okay. And he wasn't talking about this in this particular way, but he was talking about the brain using predictive modeling and that a lot of what we think of as, you know, conscious intelligence is, is around that idea of trying to figure what's going to happen next and doing a lot of this abstract modeling. But it occurred to me, and this is something I'm still developing, you know, and as an amateur whatever I am. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm fascinated by the idea that these tools, these predictive models literally exist as, you know, a physical structure in the brain, right? Like you develop them, but they, they become these elaborate structures of connections in the brain. And I, it occurred to me that if this is true, like if, if, if these models literally exist as, you know, connections of neurons, then then when we believe something, in, in a sense, a belief is probably a kind of predictive model, like that, mm. that it, it's kind of a way of evaluating the world and that it's different from just like facts. Like, you know, we can store memories and, and knowledge, but predictive models around belief, I believe this is going to happen and I believe this belief system, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. If it's been developed over time, it's probably a really elaborate physical structure in your brain. So just telling somebody something different there's probably really strong biological reasons why it's better to like protect that model than have to develop a new one. Yes. No, that's a great point. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I just, I, I can't really make much more of it than that right now. And I'm not in a position, you know, my day job has nothing to do with this stuff, <laughs> but I, I am fascinated by the idea that there's literally a sort of biological cost to developing a belief and that, that protecting that belief structure is not just about an idea. It's literally, you know, something you've worked really hard in your brain to build and letting go of it, whether regardless of emotional content, it may just be physically hard, you know, it may be difficult. 
So no, I I, I totally agree, and I think that um, it's a sort of an interesting time when I think we're going to start to see more work being done on this. If you look at like the the sort of Hebb's law, uh, Donald Hebb was the psychologist who developed this idea that we then adapted to neurogenesis, which is you know what fires together wires together, and we we understand that the brain creates these kinds of uh, superhighways of information and then lets some of the connections die away really so that this predictive processor can work more efficiently. You don't have to solve every every damn problem every time you encounter it. You have these preferred stereotypical sort of brain responses. And I think you're right. Beliefs are going to turn out to have this kind of structure which will probably be connections between symbols and experiences like episodic and um, non-episodic memories, but also the motor system and emotions like the subcortical regions of the brain, you know, the, the, the amygdala and the hypothalamus. And these things are all wired together when we're just basically remembering a trip we took, you know, to Paris a few years ago. So imagine if you, you've got a belief in God or you've got a belief in aliens among us, that's probably going to be existing in the brain, like you said, in a similar way. It's going to be a series of uh, sensory experiences and affective or emotional experiences and then motor tendencies, like do I want to run away from this thing or run towards it? And so when your brain and your body has built such an elaborate structure and then somebody comes along and goes, yeah, well, the evidence isn't there for this belief, it's not going to be like, oh, I'm just going to drop this entire scaffolding <laughs> you know, that I've built um, physiologically in order to accommodate some little data point. I'm going to tr probably try to hold on to the scaffolding yeah. and then re-see the data point as either an anomaly or, as, or dismiss it in some other way. Exactly. And, and I think that that kind of, what would you call that? Uh, conservation of belief, maybe. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> this idea of you've invested so much in it, you want to protect it. With, with, not even consciously, but just like you just, your body wants to protect it. That's it. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it could account for a lot of the way we behave in relationships when we, you know, we see erroneous or negative behaviors from people we've invested a lot of time with, you know, it's like, wait a minute. You yeah. Know, are they really a bad person? And we, gosh, don't we all love to say bad person, good person and move on? Because that's a lot <laughs> easier cognitively, isn't it? It but, is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like saying, no, humans are complicated. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're, no, no, shut up. That's too hard. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. We're, we like the easy bifurcation. Yes. <laughs> oh, no. I, I noticed in, you also have a book out called Monsters on the Brain and Epistemology of Horror. Yeah, actually, that's it's just a really long article. It might it could have been a book. Okay, sorry, it sorry. Just makes yeah, up yeah. a journal. It's a big journal article. I should have put in. It, I probably knew that last night and forgot by this morning. <laughs> oh, no problem. <laughs> so is that something I can link to? Then I guess directly to. Oh, it, it is. It yeah. was in JSTOR. That's where I found it. Okay, so I can put that in the show notes. What, what's that about? Yeah, that that article has gotten a lot of attention. It, it actually got me invited onto um, Bill Stevens's uh, Vsauce show on YouTube. He's, I, I wasn't as familiar with him, but my son, you know, said, Oh, this guy's really famous. And it sure enough, he's like, got, I think the show, he did a wonderful show on fear and it's got like 15 million views or something on YouTube. But that is an article about the sort of the stuff we're talking about right now, which is how does fear work um, in the brain and how does the culture of horror 
sort of capitalize on those uh, physiological and neurological um, structures and tendencies in order to sort of maximize fear or sort of regulate fear. Because sometimes what we want to do is amp up the fear, and we use horror stories and monster stories to do that. And sometimes what we want to do is downregulate the fear. And oftentimes then, uh, you know, if you look at going through a haunted house, you'll see that some some people are like, yeah, this is really happening. And um, the zombie's really chasing me. And they try to amp themselves up that this is real. And others are telling themselves, this isn't really happening. This is just a haunted house or this is just a movie. Yeah. And uh, that's just a really fun distinction. Uh, some friends of mine, Matthias Klaassen in, in uh, Denmark and um, Colton Scrivener in Chicago have been working on sort of tracking people as they go through haunted houses and like what, what is their style of handling the, the fear. Wow, that's neat. Yeah, so that article is sort of about that, setting the scene for that. Yeah, we've we've obviously talked about fear a lot on the show, and, and I think, you know, monsters. I think that's probably the go-to thing people think of versus they evoke they evoke fear. But of course, they also they can have a wide range of feel. I mean, who many people you know feel a, a huge amount of sort of uh, sympathy for the Frankenstein monster, mm-hmm. or or sort of this, a weird sexual attraction to certain vampires, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. You know, it says they're the bad boys or whatever, yeah. you know, it's like, no, it's but, true. but I like, I like the, the one I like the most is awe. When, when a, when a monster evokes awe, like it's maybe not so much in the original Godzilla, but some of those giant monster movies, you know, they, sometimes an image or a moment in the film will like truly inspire. It's like, Oh wow. We are so tiny. And I guess it's sort of that Lovecraftian cosmic horror maybe. Yeah. That's right. I, I'm with you on this. That's sort of my favorite stuff as well. It's harder for, you know, the filmmakers or the writers to achieve that experience of awe because it just it's it's not a f- experience that we we have on a daily basis. Fear is fairly easy to engender in someone else. Um, you just get something snarling and running at you. You know, the job is done. But if you want that sort of cosmic sense that things are not right with the universe, you know, that maybe God is not in his heaven or I'm not protected or, or even positively awe is just that Grand Canyon sort of a sublime experience (laughs) where you just feel small, right? You just, the cosmos is vast. Uh, That is, I think, an amazing aesthetic experience. And I love art and even entertainment that kind of triggers that. And and some people would call this, you know, awe. Some people would call it wonder. Mm. And I think it's really an important, I mean, Aristotle said that this is how all philosophy starts, is you have to have some sense of wonder. And then it's sort of an interesting question, what's, the, what's, is curiosity the same? Is it different? In what ways is it different? So, yeah, I think this is kind of a fun, fun territory. It really is. I think I, when I think about the sort of the kaiju monsters, I, I, my son is a huge fan of kaiju and all kinds of monsters and, and Lego and trains. But anyway, he, (laughs) he likes, you know, monster movies. There's lots and lots of damage and, you know, you know, big fights between monsters. So he's really loved the sort of reboots. But my favorite of those movies is weirdly is Rodan. And Mm. it's, it's not just because like of the, of the, Rodan monster itself it's because the way they set the movie up you start out with like a mining community and something's happening to the miners and you don't know what it is exactly and you realize oh no there's like these giant sort of maggoty caterpillar monsters that are eating people they're they're huge you know it's so scary you know it's like a Mm. it's like a terror thing 
And then later on, there's the big reveal that these giant monsters the miners are afraid of are just the food that the Rodan eats, right? Mm, you know, it's yeah, like, that's like it's like that moment, like, oh no, <laughs> I was scared of the wrong thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, that is, I mean, that's one of the things too that those films have been getting right is what is our relationship to nature? And, you know, I think if you look at the kind of science fiction and horror films that would have been made, you know, that, that were made in the 50s, our our relationship with nature is you know, fairly, you know, we're in a dominant position after the bomb, you know, obviously the Japanese were, were sort of saw science and nature differently as did, as did everyone. But I think now these reboots of, of the Kaiju are also sort of looking at, you know, the environmental problems, but also just the same, the same old problem that's always been there, which is we're just one species among others. And we've, come to believe that we're in some dominant position, but just put us against another species and you see how, how pathetic we might be. And uh, so I love that about the Kaiju. It, it just remind, and I'll sort of, I love it about the alien franchise too. These things don't mean you harm. They're not nefarious in that way. They're just another species trying to survive. They just happen to need you for food or to gestate their young or whatever it is. And that's a kind of Darwinian horror that I think was only possible after Darwin. Darwin was like, look, nature is not the beautiful, elegant design that that Newton was talking about, where God had a handful of laws and everything's gorgeous. Uh, actually, it's a messy sort of bloody feast of one group against another. And that creates a whole kind of horror that I think is is really quite modern compared to other monster narratives of the past. Yeah, and... That's a good segue because the alien uh, xenomorphs are, in a sense, they're kind of a hybrid because they they always take on some of the aspects of the host monster that they gestate inside. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. So in 2017, you wrote a paper called Why Are So Many Monsters Hybrids? And uh, I, that's a great question. Why are so many monsters hybrids? And I'll put a link to that paper in the show notes. Yeah, I 
I'm not the first person to notice this, but I think once you notice it, you can't help but see it everywhere you look, is that all of those ancient Greek uh, monsters, and even before that, the Egyptian monsters, and mm. even even before that, you know, the Babylonian monster, let's say, of Gilgamesh, these are all hybrids of some kind that you take two animals and you mash them together in the imagination, and you have a creature that's extremely activating or arousing for our cognitive attention. And this is a way of thinking about monsters really, I'm sort of interested in two two levels here. One is to think about monsters almost epidemiologically, like why does a monster like the dragon, for example, sort of spread almost like a disease through many populations and many different, you know, historical eras. It's a really sticky meme. It seems to get transferred very easily sort of horizontally to your friend, but also generationally sort of vertically from parents to children and grandparents. And so there are certain monsters that have a tremendous popularity and longevity. And one way to think about them is almost like a meme that's particularly sticky. And why is that? And so the argument is fantastical creatures, like where you mash up two two animals, really violate your conceptual categories of what should be normal. And when you violate them and you put them in a narrative and a story, it really draws attention and it basically takes on a life of its own. And here I mean sort of a meme in the way that Richard Dawkins would have used the, the term. It's a replicator. Just like a gene replicates biologically, the meme repli- replicates in culture. And so I started looking at this and I realized, well, this might be one of the earliest sort of uh, moves within the imagination. If we could talk about the imagine the evolution of the imagination, almost like we could talk about the evolution of language, then there must have been some early moves in language, like a deep grammar where you can put like subjects and predicates together. And so too, I think in the imagination, what happened was we were able to take a memory or a perception of an animal and mix, blend it up in our head with another animal. And that ended up creating what I would call sort of a deep grammar of imagination. So these sort of hybridizing tendencies within cognition end up producing a lot of early culture. So if you look at religion, it's filled with hybrid creatures. You've got, you know, sort of, if you think about Hinduism, you've got these wonderful hybrid combinations of different animals. Or, hey, let's just add... Uh, arms and legs. If two arms are powerful, then Vishnu, let's add 10 arms to Vishnu. And so the mind starts to do these hybridizing um, and sort of addition functions. And as a result, you get monsters and heroes that proliferate like um, really sticky memes. So that's sort of what I'm doing in that article. Yeah. that. So in, in 2019, I went to uh a conference called of gods and monsters at Texas state university that was put on by Joe Laycock and Natasha Michaels. And it was, you know, it was largely a religious studies conference, but there was a lot of uh, other disciplines represented there. And I presented a paper that was about a pattern for monster flaps. But in the process of researching that paper, I, I got really focused on memes and this idea of, you know, why do these sort of monster flaps become, and I really hate to use the word viral, but that's, you know, that's kind of the way they, they spread mm-hmm. out, you know. And I, I think I've identified some patterns there. But but 
in that research, I realized that the, the whole idea of calling memes viral is a misunderstanding, or, or I think it's just wrong. I mean, because we, while we do sometimes copy ideas and share them with, with like close adherence to the original idea, it seems like usually what happens is we get an idea and then it sort of merges with our own interior material in our brain, our own ideas. Mm -hmm. And then what comes out is something new. You know, when you see mm -hmm. people, you know, a lot of people like and share and without changing things online, but more fun is when they, they get an idea and they see a pattern and they make their own version. Right. And I think, yeah. I think the reason I pulled away from this in my paper was because there's a lot of baggage here, but it's, it seemed more like a sexual reproduction thing where you're getting genetics or mimetics from the outside. You're merging them with mimetics inside your head mm. and you get a new thing on that you put out. And that new thing has its own chance of failing or, or thriving or, or spreading or, or not. And so it's kind of hard to predict any of this. If, if you could predict it accurately, what's going to take off? Well, then you'd be in marketing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> But I just, I'm just fascinated by the way humans like that. We have this compulsion to share ideas and, and change them. And, and I think there's a lot of interesting unconscious selective pressure at play there within this idea, this idea space. I, I agree with you completely. And I think maybe sexual selection is the better uh, mechanism here or, or, or analogy here, because you're right. As soon as you start to transmit innovation creeps in, variation creeps in, um, and you're always sort of adjusting the, the meme or the image or the story. And that's sort of how all culture transmits. Like it, it really, it's not a perfect copy. Uh, it never has been. Uh, it can't be because of, I think, the, the actual process of, of transmission. And people will sometimes sort of complain now in our political culture about uh, cu cultural appropriation. But in reality, all culture is cultural appropriation. Right, exactly. Everything yeah. is mixing. This conversation we're having now will go like in my head and in your head in two different directions mm -hmm. later, you know, and then it will produce other stuff. And so variation really is the norm here. And I, I think that's right. So that's interesting. Now, <laughs> amusingly to me, one of the things I ran into was that so many of the religious studies people self-identified as Buddhist. Like, 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 oh. and so I, I, it seemed to be, I mean, this is one conference, but it just seemed like a lot of those folks or, or, well, there was obviously a lot of atheists too. I think one thing that can come out of studying religion too much is you go, oh, well, maybe, um, there's all these religions and none of them are right. You know, maybe that's a possibility, right. but, <laughs> but I, I did, a lot of people seem very at peace with Buddhism. And I noticed that that was something that's part of your life. Is, is that, how does that inform your monster work? Well, I think there's maybe a, explicit way that it informs it and then a much harder to, to to figure out you know submerged way that it informs it i think the explicit way is i've just uh, i'm a hugely interested in asian cultures mm. and i i've lived in china i lived in china for a couple of years i lived in cambodia for a while i've, I've traveled in bhutan in burma laos thailand I'm thinking, all I can think of is so many wonderful people, things to see, the cult, yeah. and so many monsters. Good grief, there's yes. so many monsters over there. It's amazing. That's I love it. it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's one of the, the things that I like to do in my work is I'm very ecumenical. I won't just talk about the Western monsters. I do, I do spend a lot of time looking at uh, the monsters of the East 
And so I've done a lot of work on hungry ghosts and also I've, I'm extremely interested in the animism that exists in Asia, which is sort of below the official re- level of official religions, mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, animism exists very much here as well, but it's really under these layers of official religion. One thinks, for example, about New Orleans and the way in which, you know, on top of the animism are sort of African and uh, Catholic traditions. And so that's part of my interest in in Asia. And in and a lot of this then in Asia comes out of the Buddhist tradition as well as the Hindu tradition. So that's one answer. But then I think like a lot of people who were raised in the West and f- fell away from maybe their monotheism at some point, Buddhism offers a an alternative that's fairly rational. It's fairly consistent with the sciences. It's quite different from Hinduism in that sense, which is really sort of a, a belief-based religion. In Buddhism, it's more like a kind of empirical approach to consciousness. And so I think that's what draws a lot of people towards Buddhism is that you don't have to believe that the Buddha is a god. In fact, he says, I'm not. And you don't have to believe in the Dharma or the teachings of the Buddha. You just have to try them. Okay, meditate. Does it help? If it helps, then you, you sort of you're a Buddhist. If it doesn't help, then you know discard it. That's really the sort of approach in in Buddhism that you find. So I think that's what drew me toward it, and I think that continues to be a, a major draw toward Buddhism. I am um, I I'm I'm not super informed, but like I I do understand that there's some differences between orthodoxy, the the sort of like adherence to certain beliefs and orthopraxy, which is, Mm. I guess, the actual things you do to demonstrate your adherence to an idea. One of the things that really impressed me at that conference was the way that the Yeti is perceived within Tibetan Buddhism versus the way it's sort of reduced in cryptozoology to a misunderstood, you know, an animal. It's just an animal. But it's not just an animal. And, and I feel like cryptozoology is doing a pretty big disservice in, in the way that it treats Yeti. Have, have you looked at that at all? I mean, I, we're know, definitely going to do more coverage of that on the show because. Yeah, I, I look forward to that because I know about as much as you just said there. Okay. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I, just as a teaser, it's, it involves uh, these sort of mystical disappearing cities and, mm-hmm. and, and all kinds of lore about these creatures that are, they're not exactly animal. They're not exactly people. And, you know, um, they I, they feel much more like fairies like mm-hmm. or, or jinn to me mm-hmm. in, in what I learned. So I'm definitely going to be bringing that back up on the show because, uh, you know, you know the, the sort of like, you know, thousands and thousands of stories about people living with these spiritual creatures. And the, no, no, it's a bear. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That's, well, yeah, that's the, I, I would say there's an analogy here to the Native American tradition yeah. and, some, and some of the cryptids that we would recognize, whether it's, you know, Sasquatch or Wendigo or Skinwalkers mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And I've, I've become good friends with the actor Paul Giamatti. And oh, really? Yeah, and he's, he's a he's a national treasure, I think. Uh, but it's interesting that he and I share this interest in in what we're, we're dis- discussing now, which is what about these sort of spirit creatures that you'll see 
maybe in a native culture, but also are some of the alien abduction stories possibly reenacting some of this? And what what are the psychodynamics involved and why are people attracted to this? Uh, so I do think there's a territory here that cryptozoology hasn't quite recognized. I, I, I do love just standard cryptozoology, don't get me wrong. I, I love the idea of thinking through what what would a creature need biologically and in terms of evolution to survive in a certain ecology? Sure. I yeah. think that's really awesome work. But also there's this question about, you know, is there a sort of social psychology issue here that that really makes sense out of these spirit creatures like the Yeti or like maybe maybe Bigfoot to some Native Americans? Yeah, I think there's some strong parallels indeed. Uh, I, now, this is sort of territory that uh, Jacques Vallée sort of got into in the UFO field with the, his book, Passport to Magonia. But it's also territory that John Keel explored in the Mothman prophecies and, uh. and some of his work, um, Strange Creatures from Time and Space. So he got into the idea of ultra-terrestrials and also noted that these things have an incredible parallel to fairies and that kind of lore. And I, I don't think he got much into gin, but the, that has become a big part of, I don't know if it's cryptozoology, but like this phenomenology, that sort of mystical uh, idea of the ultra-terrestrials are fitting into this sort of cosmic otherness milieu. It, it, it's mm -hmm. definitely out there. I just don't know where it falls. I think a lot of the cryptozoologist people are really, they want to be biologists, right? They, they, yes. want, these, they want these monsters <laughs> to be real animals. But regardless of what those sort of hardcore pelts and paws people want, the public, like where the where the stories live, they always embrace the weirdness. Like the, and so yes. we've talked a little bit about how that the cryptozoologists may have a little bit of a tendency to sort of shave off the odd when they're writing their stories. Like yes. here's what they reported, you know. I'm not going to include that they also saw fairies and glowing lights and people <laughs> stepping through portals and that sort of thing. You know, that's not as important as we saw footprints and hair, you know. So <laughs> and I, those other things are part of the story and maybe the bigger part. And they're certainly the part that seems to capture people's imagination. So, yeah. Yeah. This is something that I that I want to work on more. And I'm only just, you know, getting, you know, my fingernails in it. But it, I think that's right. Like phenomenologically. You know, what does phenomenology mean? It, it means that I, as the subject, I'm having an experience. And the phenomenologists basically want to describe sort of thick description of the experience without making evaluative claims about what exists and what doesn't exist. Those are really interesting and important scientific questions. But the phenomenologist is just saying, well, here's how, you know, the blooming, buzzing confusion of experience is coming at me. And in that is going to be uh, stuff that doesn't easily reduce down. It's going to be the odd, the strange, the what William James called the. Wow, what, he had a wonderful phrase for this. The it was like the unreconciled residuum. He, he called it. You know, it's like so just stuff that doesn't fit in right. And you're right. I think then we clean up this phenomenological experience so that it makes sense according to our expectations. But the phenomenologist wants to keep that weirdness whole. And in that, even if it's the imagination that's providing it, okay, that's fine with me. It means that maybe ultra-terrestrials are something that we're providing because we have animistic tendencies within cognition. And then we bring that when we're out in nature and we see nature as animated in a way, as having sort of agents within it. 
is that real? Well, phenomenology doesn't care. <laughs> you know, this, yeah. you know that, that's an important question for somebody else. That's not what you're doing in phenomenology. Does the forest seem alive with agents? That's really, that is true for many of us. Whole cultures, Japanese, you know, uh, traditions of animism, every Hayao Miyazaki film, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and all of us, too, have a tendency to read nature in this way. But I think it's, it could be this complex story of how much is the imagination providing and how much is in nature that the scientific mind is not noticing or charting. Well, I, I think <laughs> it's very easy to think of animism as something those people do, whoever that is, right? But you need really look no further than teddy bears to see that um, <laughs> we, right. we, we, we definitely bring a lot of, or, or, or as I like to point out, uh, people who own cats. Uh, <laughs> we, put a lot, we, we bring a lot to those relationships that the other side's not bringing. And if you ever get mad and yell at your car, I'm gonna. Yep. I, I would su su suggest that um, some part of you thinks your car is gonna listen. It's not, but you know, uh, yes. it, that's it's a very natural thing to to see motive and agency in things that have none, right? And you're right. You know, I a, agree. A walk in the woods, a, you know, in the afternoon can be lovely. A walk in the woods at night, you're surrounded by something. You know, and <laughs> yes. it, it might be your imagination, but it feels like the woods are alive. You know, so. No, I think that's right. And I think all of us really uh, have a tendency towards animism, and then we train out of it mm -hmm. through scientific literacy. And yeah. that's a good thing. But we shouldn't then take a kind of arrogant view that, oh, only, you know, illiterate people and primitive people or whatever are, are animists. No, I think you're right. That we're still animists. We just try to bracket it and control it out of, you know, certain kinds of decision making. Yeah, I I think all of this, as much as I love rationalism, I think it's a it's a chore. It's not a destination. It's something you always have to be. It's like you're you're making up your bed or cleaning out your trash because it's not a natural mode of thinking. I think it's like mm -hmm. a technology. I think it's it's a you know it's a set of mental tools that you use to sort of evaluate things. And it's there there may be some you know core rationality. It's just like there's some core mathematics, but it it takes training and effort because it's really easy to slip into letting your feelings guide you. And I mean, Star Wars tells us that's the way to go. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, that's it. I mean, the, I think the skeptical, the skeptic movement and, you know, I'm, I'm friends with Michael Shermer, you know, I, I, I respect the movement as a way of like, Hey, people are too, you know, his view is, although he's been changing his view also over the last 10 years. Yeah. You know, the, the, the traditional skeptic view is don't live by feeling states you know, live according to rationality. And, uh, but you're right. If, if you just think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, the emotional brain is a problem solver. It's an adaptive, if you take the emotional and imaginative aspects of cognition, they've been under construction for millions of years, as long as there's been mammals. Human, you know, uh, logic and rationality really only emerges after language, unless, you know, you could talk about some very core logic uh, principles before that, but it's very recent on the scene. So that means that most uh, mammals, including our ancestors, and including most humans for most human history, would have solved the problems, the adaptive problems of life pretty well using imaginative and affective or emotional structures. 
and and for us to sort of poo poo that and re- and sort of say well that all of that is is ends up like with just the worst kind of superstition is i think a kind of arrogance that needs to 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 check itself yeah yeah it really does and uh, you know i think it would be fun to have like one set of simple rules that guided everything but you know we, we i think our minds are much more like the console of a 747 there's lots of knobs and switches and right. dials so you got to you got to yeah. constantly be adjusting your flight patterns and uh, you know your, your, all the I insert appropriate airline piloting metaphor here, you know, so, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> adjust your trim. That's all I, I got it. Okay. So, <laughs> but it, it's, it's a constant struggle to sort of, you know, level those things out now, but I, but I do, because we're kind of running out of time. I want to say, uh, let's talking from the heart for a minute, man, I really love your monsterology channel. Oh, thank you. So, what I would describe it like this: it's it's you drawing or painting, you're using arts to to present images while and talking about that process while also talking about monsters and your influences for the piece you're working on. But it reminds me of something I had forgotten about from years ago. I used to watch this show on PBS when I was a kid called Cover to Cover that was hosted by this guy named John J. Robbins. And then he was just an artist and he would tell stories. He would read children's books and make his own illustrations. And it was a simple little show, but oh, it touched me. Like, I mean, it was like, it was such a big part of me as a kid. You know, my mom uh, would let me read the encyclopedia and watch PBS all I wanted. Those were like the absolute unchecked things I could do without any worry, right? (laughs) And, you know, to be brought up in a house that was very, you know, fundamentalist Southern Baptist, having some things where I could do it without being worried about the consequences was Mm. great. And so I got to see this guy. He was really nice. And he passed away in 2016. And uh, I'll put his obit in the show notes because I I thought interesting character. But, But your channel sort of evoke that it gives it is it's full of really cool art techniques you're a really good artist but well, also you. you're you're sort of sharing ideas about how this works and about monsters and big ideas about monsters in the process well i appreciate the kind words and it has been really a labor of love i started it when we all had the sort of pandemic shutdown mm. originally and it it's really i just thought to myself you know, I, I really have always loved creating art. Uh, I thought I was going to be an illustrator when I was, you know, starting out in college. And then I, you know, started reading this philosophy and I realized, oh God, you know, I got to change my major to philosophy because I'm not going to be able to understand Immanuel Kant without, you know, a teacher helping me. And then I, it took me on this wonderful detour uh, towards philosophy. And, you know, I've, I've written 10 books now. But at this point in, in my life, I realized I, f- I felt this you know, deep calling to return to art making and drawing and painting. And I have to say, it's, it's way more satisfying than, than writing books. But I also realized, you know, that, that YouTube is a tremendous, I don't need to really explain this to anybody. You know, I publish a book or I write an article and, you know, dozens, maybe hundreds, eventually maybe a few thousand people will read it. And that's a success. But in YouTube, the reach is amazing. And so, I, I, of course, still have very small numbers, and I'm happy with the community that I've built up, but it's a way of really communicating with people. It's why many of us academics, professors, you know, we love this crazy history we read. We want to share it with other people. So for me, this is a great uh, excuse for me to tell 
about the research about some crazy monster like the Hodag in Wisconsin, yeah, or or some you know obscure book by you know uh, Borges, the Argentinian writer about monsters, and then also I'm doing images uh, so people can see the the how-to techniques and demonstrations. And when it's over, I hope that people have learned something both like from folklore and from history and philosophy and psychology, but also, you know, maybe how to, to tackle certain kinds of art, artistic ventures. So it's been tremendous fun. I'm, I'm very pleased with it. Well, I, I'm not one of these, I don't know why this is such a big thing, but there's this ASMR stuff, but yeah, I found, <laughs> I do find watching your videos very soothing as well. So I've heard that too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> the other people, yeah, that's good. <laughs> so yeah, I'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes so people can check that out. I appreciate it. To wind up, is there anything you're working on next that we should be looking forward to? I think um, I mentioned before my buddy Paul Giamatti and I are, are sort of working on things, and he, are, he and I are working on some projects about the imagination, but they're still at the very sort of embryonic phase, but keep your eye out for stuff like that. Maybe a book project, and also we're working on maybe a little animation project too down the road. But also I think I would love for people to think within – and without the university about monsterology as a, a way to organize study. You know, the humanities has sort of been taken over by basically concerns of identity. And that's important work, and I'm glad that work is getting done. But the humanities really should be a broader way of investigating the human condition. And what I like about monsterology is that it can bring in people from biology, cognitive mm -hmm. science, psychology, how to, you know, uh, neuroscience even. And that's a place where we could really be focusing some of our interests in the academy. You know, it's not this, the old, you know, canon, which people have sort of rightly critiqued, but it would be a great way to think about literature and biology um, altogether in a way that would really stimulate students and, and I think really help the humanities. So that's something else I'm, I'm interested in. Good. I think that's good. I think that's really good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's weird though, because it, it, because of its multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary nature, where does it live in academia? Exactly. You know, yeah. and, and, and maybe it lives in the podcast world. Why do, I don't, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> We'll take it. Oh, but, you know, stuff like the Monster Theory Reader, that kind of a journal that can bring together uh, these cross disciplines, that's, I think, an interesting uh, opportunity. It's an interesting and, I, and, and obviously as well, maybe more of this after the pandemic is finally over. If assuming that we don't all die. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. But right. uh, the um, conferences and symposiums bringing together cross disciplines is something I've dreamed about for years for doing, you know, just, I thought with monster talk, I could use it as sort of a, a way to do like a monster talk meetup and bring together some of the academic disciplines for that. And I hope I get to do that someday, but the more, the merrier, you know, if, if universities yeah. can put together things, man, I would love to come talk or just attend. I think these things have, I think they have appeal to a broader audience than just a classroom or just an academic discipline. Yes. I, I think because monsters are something we all, or at least everybody listening to this loves, right? So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I think everybody loves monsters. I mean, we're afraid of them, and maybe oh, sometimes they inspire awe, but but they're a big part of who we are. So agreed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for spending your generous time with me. I really appreciate it. Well, it was really great fun, and I I, I enjoyed the conversation so much, Blake. 
Me too. So you take care and keep in touch and I will send people your way. I'll put how to reach Stephen's work in the show notes. And uh, is there any website in particular you'd like them to go to? Um, my own website is just stephenasma.com. It's Stephen with a yeah. PH. Yeah. yeah, thank you. And then just the YouTube channel, Monsterology. Is Absolutely. Easy to find, so. Well, both yeah, of those you. will definitely be linked to in the show notes. So thanks again. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. You just heard an interview with Stephen Asma on Monsters, Academia, and Art. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes to his articles and to his YouTube channel. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones, and we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as The Accidental Creative, Clever, and When Things Go Wrong. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. If you enjoyed our show, please take a moment and give us a review on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps people find us in the ever-growing field of podcast content out there. been a monster house presentation sick of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 dollars more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.